Welcome to the Edition Wars Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to discuss the DMGs. We're going to start really with the first edition DMG, uh, a legend in its own right, and work our way forward through these 12 days of edition wars to the 4E DMG2. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, self, wasn't there some sort of DM's reference in OD&D? And surely, surely there's a DMG for 5E. Well, faithful listener, you're not wrong. Both of those things exist, but the 5E DMG is going to be its own deep dive once we're done with the 12 days, right? And don't call me Shirley. And don't call me Shirley. Yeah, very good. We discussed it, and we decided that maybe 5th edition being the current edition that uh, a lot of people are playing, perhaps the 5th edition DMG deserves more than one or two episodes. Also famously on Twitter, no one's read it. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) So maybe it'll be a Let's Read Edition Wars episode. Um, So uh, you also might be saying to yourself, self? Why are they skipping OD&D and the basics? And the reason we're skipping OD&D and the basics, as Brandis kind of alluded to, OD&D doesn't really have a dungeon master's guide in the way that we're using the term. Uh, And the basics, well, okay, Moldvay Cook had a book that was basically for the eyes of the DM, and Beck Me, the Frank Mincer version, had a book that was basically for the eyes of the DM, and they were even split in that edition. There was a player's book and a DM's book. And, you know, Holmes Basic really just had the one book, and it was really just one E, D, and D light. Anyway, the point there is those editions, like OD&D, did not have a Dungeon Master's Guide in the way that we are using the term. And so the way we are using the term is a separate tome purchased separately that is meant for the Dungeon Master to use, primarily. If it were titled The Dungeon Master's Guide, that's also a good tip. Yes. Not necessary, but a good tip. Right. Yes. Yes. Good tip. So, uh, the other thing to say, so our first two Edition Wars episodes, 12 Days of Edition Wars for this year, are going to be the DMG for 1E. And our plan is to sort of go through it and talk about the things in it that were important within the context of the writing of the book way back in the late 70s. And we're going to do that in two episodes. (laughs) Maybe. So that's the plan. So, okay. So let's start. First edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Special reference work published in what year? That's your first quiz for the day. Oh, uh, good heavens. Uh, Looks like 79. It was 79. Yeah. And the thing about that was the, the monster manual for first edition was published first, and then the player's guide, and then the DMG. Hey, hey Sam. Hey, Sam. Yes. Uh, I have an inquiry regarding the, the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, fortunately, the first page has instructions on what to do if I have an inquiry. I have, oh, really? I have a rule I want clarified, so I'm going to need to yes. – uh, send a, a stamped return envelope 
addressed to AD&D questions, TSR Games, uh, uh, Post Office Box 756, Lake, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, uh, 53147. I feel confident that I will get a response very promptly <laughs> when I send that letter. Yeah, you might. Would you say? You might see it published in one of the future dungeon or dragon magazines. It'll probably show up in the forum section. That'd be really good. Yeah. 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 Like it'd that. be in the forum. Right. Uh-huh. Or possibly it would be addressed in letters or sage advice. Mm, uh, good. You know, depending yep. on which, which, you know, issue and volume it was. Yep. Uh, yeah. This is actually a material component for my seance to get <laughs> Gary to possess uh, J. Crawl. That's, that's my deal. Hey, you know, I'm on board. Let's cool. do it. Yeah. All right. I would not do that to Jeremy Crawford. He deserves better, but that's okay. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Um, okay, so <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, what start the book, now? The, yeah, I know, right? The book actually starts with a forward by. I'm not gonna. Uh, we're not gonna go page by page, people. But I just want to point out the book starts with a forward by Mike Carr. Mike Carr is a, you know. If you don't know, he's a he's a relatively famous D and D designer. For example, he designed B one in Search of the Unknown. Okay, oh. um, so uh, here here's the thing. Um, he starts with the forward. He starts with the most salient sentence that we're probably going to ever read uh, <laughs> in 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 this entire series. Here, here is the sentence: Is dungeon mastering an art or a science? I mean, right there, it's, we just hit on the entire problem for every edition. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's that's fair. And I there mean, it is. It, it there's a lot to be said for DMs knowing when to go, lean into the rules and when to gloss over the rules. Absolutely. Oh yes. I mean, yeah. So, is there anything in the first few pages here that you? That you want to talk about? Uh, what interests me most about the first few pages is how how much they are structured in terms of persuasive essaying, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like we we do jump into the mechanics pretty quickly of explaining what this beast is um, by first examining its rope like tail and then its brick like. You get the picture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's you know, Gygax does uh, love his own word count and isn't too shy about filling it. Um, and so, I mean, there's a, a, a very brief primer on the stats of 3D6. I, I don't know why, but sure, fine, whatever, it's fine. Well, uh, I think partly it's because... At the time this was written, the majority of people that were interested in this game, I think Gygax thought it was all wargamers who had very mathematical minds who cared about such things, right? Like who cared about the fact that the bell curve for 3D6 favors between 9, 10, and 11, and 12 as your Right. Majority roles. Well, right? and, and and the other problem that he's solving is that um, the full range of polyhedrals are not as regularly available in those heady days of seventy mm-hmm. nine as they are now, where uh, there's a pretty fair chance I could get them from Walgreens. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're widely available now. You know, in the first, there was a Holmes Basic Edition box. 
that was it's called the jail it's called the jailbreak box because it didn't come with dice because they couldn't get dice made to put into the box. So they made chits. They cut, they made the different dice. They made numbers one through 20 and then one through 10 and what, you know, so that you could cut them out and put them in a cup and draw them out. That, that was your randomizer. I am technically aware of such a thing, but I'm horrified. <laughs> yeah. I think it was called the jail jailbreak or, or the jail edition or something like that. That, that was, that was its nickname. <laughs> Because you could, you can't use dice in jail because it's gambling. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, the next really important piece of information is another mailing address. Uh, it's the same I know, mailing I saw, address. Hey, but look, they actually um, talk about White Dwarf. <laughs> I know, it's great. I was going to mention that. <laughs> which I think is hilarious, right? Um, but, you know, this is also back in the heady days when Dragon Magazine had advertisements from all different kinds of companies. There were articles about games that TSR didn't publish, you know. Um, I mean, because it was a true, ma- it was a gamer's magazine. And so there was a wide variety of material and content for it. That went the way of the Dodo Bird around, I don't know, 1995, maybe. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what year that happened, but. But it went away. Um, but yeah, that's how it used to be. I will point out that on the same page, he talks about different methods for generating ability scores. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that these are here. Um, it's it's kind of wild how mu- how many of these have survived into five E. Um, right. Like uh, method one, that looks familiar. Yeah. Um, like <laughs> yeah. when you get right down to it. Method one is still one of the most common means out there, mm-hmm. and the only two serious competitors for that post are point by and uh, the uh, 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, 8 array. Right. As far as I could tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's any mm-hmm. other uh, competitor for most common character generation method that uh, breaks out of about 5% of players using it, I would be genuinely surprised. Yeah. No, I and just for the audience, method one is roll 46, drop the lowest, and then do that six times and then arrange them however you want. That's literally method one. So folks, that is not something new. That is not your fifth edition D&D being good. That is <laughs> your fifth edition D&D hearkening back to previous you know, additions. I mean, even, so in other words, what this says to me is even back then, and I, I mean, I played back then, so I knew this already, but what it says to me looking at it, if I'm trying to look with the most objective eyes, it says to me that people already wanted to finagle and and fiddle with their games to make it the way that they wanted to make it. And Gary Gygax writing this thought that it was important enough of an aspect of the game to put in several methods and let you choose which one of these do you want to do? Well, I'm I here. I'm just going to point out uh, that, as Tevya says, where would we be without tradition? That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. So let's move on to the next page. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we're not doing this page by page. I want we, you to keep that are, in mind. We are, but there's a table on this page that I want to talk about. <laughs> so uh, it's oh, the secondary man. skills table. Yep, that's going to survive essentially unchanged yep. into uh, second ed. Essentially unchanged, exactly. And exactly. Like, as I think we talked about when we did skills, uh, the, the secondary skills table is just, would you like a random background? Cool, go. 
right? And it's, we're not going to attach we're not going to attach any real mechanical benefit to it. However, it's up to the purview of the dungeon master whether they want to allow you an easier time doing something because you can make the case that it's part of your background knowledge. Yeah, and you know, as a as a background skill system for a game that otherwise doesn't yet have a skill system and won't until um, Oriental Adventures. Right. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, it's fine. It's it's pretty yeah. functional. Um, just background skills by DM Fiat and cool go mm-hmm. is right. is okay. Yeah, I mean, because even even at that, you know, Oriental Oriental Adventures uh, was not core, right? So so when you're talking about didn't have a codified skill system in the core for years. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. So we have a bunch more tables of uh, age. The age you start play, um, mm-hmm. age categories, um, but then we get into some some just really exciting stuff. Um, you know, Brandis told me before we started recording this that he wanted to spend forty five minutes on page fourteen. I I I did not say I want to spend forty five minutes. I said I want to be a six episode series on the history of infectious disease <laughs> in D and D. I was I was trying to be nice. Nope, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not having it. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot be nice to my dumb ideas. They they will multiply if you do not put that shit down. It's like an acme anvil. That's right. So so there's there's just an incredible amount of depth in terms of tables and modifiers for different kinds of disease and parasitic infestation. And that might be what's missing from just <laughs> <laughs> 5e, not enough chance of parasitic infestation. We need to make that happen, people. I okay. So here, here's the thing, though, right? So I and and I know we're kind of making fun of this, but look, this is part of the reason I'm a biologist. That's fair. I, like, I'm actually I, not completely joking. Like a, a storyline about parasitic infestation is horrible and gross and awesome. Yeah. It's totally nasty, but even even sort of setting the disease aspect of it aside, I mean, this talks about all the different tissue types in the body and the different organs. And, you know, at the time I was reading, I mean, look, I started playing in 1982 when I was looking at my older brother's first edition DMG, I was like 10 years old. And I'm like, wow, the brain and the respiratory system, what the hell's a generative organ? You know, like, (laughs) I'm like, what is gastrointestinal? Like, you know, I was 10. I didn't really, you know, I I maybe had heard these words, probably not. And I'm looking at these and I'm like, I have no idea what the hell this stuff is. But I'm totally intrigued because there's a one to three, you know, acute cardiovascular renal occurrence on a D8. Like, what does that even mean? You know, this sounds, it sounds like I'm making fun of it, but I'm serious when I say this book is part of the reason I have a very large vocabulary as an adult. Oh, for sure. Also, the, the sort of origins of my love of biological nasty stuff. So... So what I want to say about it, like it, it, it's easy to, like, to to poke fun at it, and the thing that is actually bad here is only the organization, right? Mm-hmm. This follows on age categories in no rational way at all. Like aging and disease. Okay, these are 
things that could happen to your character, and they're things you might not want to have happen to your character if you are uncomfortable with aging, but that's all that mm. connects them. Um, right. Yeah. Like th- this book winds up, it winds up being as popular as it is. I think because trying to get through it is an initiatory experience and yeah. you're just and? like every new page is a completely different blog post on a topic. Right. Because Gary right. just want to talk but, about the thing now. Right. But, and, the other reason why is why it could get away with having such a poor organization is there was nothing else. Right. I mean, there were other role-playing games, but for D and D, this was it. This is, I mean, even if you were, you know, I know dragon magazine had a pretty good subscription, you know, amount, you know, they had, they had a lot of subscribers, but not at, you know, I was 10 years old. I could not afford a subscription to dragon at that time. So I didn't, this was, this was it. This is what we had. So despite the organizational issues, I mean, you're right. The only thing connecting the di- – look, diseases here and parasitic infestation, infestations are sandwiched between character aging and death. Okay? I mean, I, mean, that's, I, I assume you were active on Twitter at the time. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I was a time traveler. And uh, yeah, my Twitter handle is Sam when he was 10. Yeah. Um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously though, right? I mean this this was it. So it it has I mean I guess we should have prefaced with this, right? That this book has some severe 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 organizational issues. And you know, as extensive as the damn table of contents is, it's not helpful. <laughs> no. I mean, really all it does is say here's where here's, you know, there's just really no Well, the index is actually pretty good. I'll say that for it. The index is pretty good. Um <laughs> It is, yes. It is. If you're if you have a magnifying glass and some patience. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, there were some without an index, so we'll. All right. Um, anyway, so what else about diseases? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all I got. There's just a lot of them. Like this is a lot, and that's that's fine. Um, there, I mean, I I think that it's interesting that. There are different rules for uh, each of the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 different um, parts of you that can be diseased in this game, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it talks about the, um, the effects of that, and it, it's its own little tiny rules block. Um, yeah. And they're, they're horrible for you. I mean... Uh, if you gave a character a disease now, like mucous membranes, problems of chronic nature cause the loss of one point of constitution, each severe attack causing such loss permanently. You lose friends over that. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. And it just it just tells me that probably this, this section was observed mostly in the breach at the time. And mm-hmm. then for tables that did use it, it is a real tonal shift to sort of uh, I guess what you have to look forward to is dying face down in the mud, right? Just a very like Warhammer fantasy feel of it. I hate to say it like this, but I think Gary was a big fan of that, right? I mean, oh, for sure, for sure. His, I mean, of course, I don't, I don't know his mind, right? But I know his writing, and his, 
he was in some ways very adversarial. And if a, if a PC, if a character was getting too powerful, too big for their britches, so to speak, he would knock them down with something like this. Oh, well, you weren't paying attention when you went and swam in the lake and you caught a parasitic amoeboid infection. Leeches of the butt. Yes, and and uh, it worked its way to your respiratory system, so you now have a 10% chance of losing a point of strength and constitution, right? Um, and you now only have 1 to 12 months until fatality occurs. So get your – finish up the current module we're doing because your character is going to drop dead after that. Oh my God! Uh, with, I, like, an, with a butt infestation and a and a respiratory issue, right? Like I, I, I thought, Pendragon was harsh with <laughs> the weather critting on you, and you know, getting to watch yeah. your loved ones die from winter. This yeah. is just wow. I mean, you know, so so okay. So to defend it now, uh, other than the defense I already gave about how fascinating it is um, <laughs> as a biologist, it, it actually is. Because the thing is, he didn't just so he didn't just make this stuff up. He did research and looked at you know what you know how he could work this into a game system. But I mean, he probably had like you know Gray, Gray's Anatomy or you know some kind of encyclopedic book that that did that or some medical texts. I don't know. Um, but it's not really bad. I mean, it's not like, I don't know. Anyway, to defend it a little bit, it's optional. Yeah. I mean, it's optional. Everything, you know, this is optional. So, you know, I I don't know. I, I, I don't think that he wrote this book with the intention of every single thing in it being used in every single game. Uh, sure. I agree with that. Um, I think, I think this is only really striking because it's right up in the front of the book. If this were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, buried in um, some later chapter, uh, it wouldn't even stand out to me as as unusual. Because of course, you don't use this all the time. You use this when you feel like horrible things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, from there, we get into uh, stuff we've actually covered before about um, you know, about followers and. Um, assassins, I, I actually, assassins I, sorry, I want to go back. I no. want to go back uh, to the actually page thirteen before the big list of diseases. Oh, sure. And I just want to point out the chance of contracting disease table because yeah. I want to point out something. Uh, in a crowded area, the chance increases. In yeah. a dirty area, like an encampment or the middle of a city, the chance increases. Uh, in a hot and moist climate, the chance increases. Exposure to a carrier carrier of the disease, the chance increases more than any other thing. Yep. Uh, but seclusion on board ship for at least two weeks decreases the chance. Being extremely cold and dry weather decreases the. Huh. You know, here's the thing about this: wear your damn mask. There we okay, go. Now we can move on. I was waiting for it. Yeah. All right. So. Yep. It's just. Just everyone wants you to pencil into your first edition DMGs, which That's right. you may or may not have received from your father-in-law. Um, <laughs> a little five percent modifier. You have my permission. Mm-hmm. It's okay. A little five percent modifier uh, for wearing a mask. Plus five. Uh, well, right. minus five percent if you wore a mask. Yeah. Good. Thank you. We're, we're fine. Move on. Yep. Sounds good. Abilities. Character class changes. 
Anything you want to say about that? Um, I mean, a lot of the, the stuff about uh, character abilities, uh, we really no joke covered when we did mm-hmm. this in a previous episode. Yeah. I think we might have read most of that into the record. There's there's a ton of tables on followers, and um, there's th- a great. Th- there are a lot to get through. Um, there's a there's a great mounts table where you could roll to have a centaur as your mount or a hippogriff, yeah. or a pegasus. A centaur as your mount seems a little. Mm. Yeah, like somebody you know. He pissed somebody off. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, I mean, this book is going to have some uh, r- real gross stuff uh, about slavery. So, yeah, you know, yeah. brace yourselves. Well, and, you know, once again, this this was not really available anywhere else for a lot of people. So having a blink dog on a table and a brownie and a copper dragon on a table is like fantastical. And that's part of what makes D and D D and D for a lot of people. So, uh, you know, it, it matches that ethos. Yep. That is fair. I'm going to skip forward to page 21, the monster as a player character. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just struck by this because, uh, just before I, uh, hopped onto this episode, I was listening to, um, Jeremy Crawford and Greg Tito on um, Dragon Talk, talking about the new sidekick rules in Tasha's Culture of Everything. They're going on about the the sidekick rules and how you can have you can apply the sidekick rules and their advancement not just to humanoids, right, or even just to bipeds. You know, if you want to have uh, some sort of animal as your sidekick, they work with those sidekick rules, fine, whatever. No one cares. Um, and so this is the monster as a player character, um, and Gary is talking about like, why you can't play a monster as your player character and uh, you know how this should all be treated. Um, he talks about it being unquestionably humanocentric uh, and that is something I think is sort of particularly receded uh, from from 5e usage, right? Seeing a, mm-hmm. a D&D party with no humans at all, and instead, um, you know, tieflings and dragonborn and goliaths and tabaxi and whatever you got, really. Uh, that's, right. that's the new normal, and that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, but back at this time it's not that players didn't play elves and dwarves and gnomes and sure. all that it's it's that um they were the exception to the rest of their entire race so if you yeah. were an adventuring dwarf now i'm not saying this is a great idea right but yeah. i'm just saying if you were an adventuring dwarf you were expected to be not like the other of your people like there's something different about you because yeah. the rest of the dwarves are down mining and have living their happy little lives, mining gems and gold and all that. Some of them are trading with the other civilized races, but whatever. But most of them didn't leave and go out and adventure and break bread and make friends with other peoples. Yeah. And that's also true of elves, and it's also true of halflings or hobbits, and it's also true of gnomes, and it's it, like – that was how the game was written. I'm not saying it's right or wrong or it's a good idea or a bad idea, but that's how the game was written. And it's from the very earliest days, Gary 
basically said this is all humanocentric. The the majority of the population on the setting, in the setting, on, on Greyhawk, in the worlds that we're playing in, are humans. Yep. Um, and, I mean, to us now, uh, a lot of that sort of, you're a rare exception for your race. That's why we are even paying attention to you is problematic as hell. I, I don't want to dwell on that, but I do need to at least acknowledge it. Sure. And, and, you know, and to be fair, uh, for example, the current edition of the game has so many racial choices, uh, species choices, maybe I should say. And the, the setting, the sort of assumed setting is very cosmopolitan. You go to any of their, their, their cities or, or regions in their published work and, in almost all of those, and I'm only saying almost because I have not read every single one of them, but in almost all the works for fifth edition, they just assume there are all these races around. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of the opposite of the assumption back when this book was published. Yeah. And that's something that we really cared about when we were writing Seas of Adari too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, there's all these different peoples and they interact like an island may have a majority populace, but mm-hmm. there are no exclusive uh, islands, right? right? No island is 100% anything. Right. Um, even the ones where that's a majority of uh, things that eat humans, uh, right. there are still other kinds of people there. And, mm-hmm. and things that we, in writing the setting, want to acknowledge as being people. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, he 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 writes quite a treatise on uh, why he does not include monsters. As I mean, his last paragraph is: "So you are virtually on your own with regard to monsters as player characters. You have advice as to why they are not featured, why no details of monster character classes are given herein. The rest is up to you. It's your world and your players, and they must live. Uh, their characters must, you know." be acceptable by the table. It's basically yep. what he's saying. Yep. And um, I, and I love the flames that must have shot from his ears at the, at seeing uh, <laughs> TSR publish the council of worms setting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he was no longer uh, involved with the company. At oh, no, indeed. Time, no, so, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and then on the next page, Although I do the art on that last page of the on on the monsters is player that's iconic art. Yeah, the dragon is breathing, and there's kobolds. <laughs> some of them look like they're playing, uh, and some of them look like they're being breathed on. So I'm not. Some of them I think are attacking that dragon. Yeah, and and so that's very different from our normal thought. You know, lately kobolds have been presented as. Uh, dragon worshippers and draconic in nature, um, but these are dog-headed, dog-faced kobolds. So anyway, that's for a different series. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, lycanthropy is the next section. I'm not sure we need to talk about that. Uh, no, um, except to uh, to just note that. Um, He's, he does actually cover why being a werebear might interfere with being an adventurer uh, in, in <laughs> yeah. ways that uh, don't really show up now. Um, there's a thing in um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the Exandria setting book that 
can lead to PCs being lycanthropes, and it gets real weird. If you oh, have yeah. PC lycanthropes, I don't recommend it. Yeah. Because you're immune to weapons that aren't silver or magic. That's right. That's a lot. That is a lot. Anyway. I mean, you know, the, the thing, uh, I can't say that I have ever played willingly a character <laughs> that was suffering from lycanthropy. You know, it's a disease. So, um, I guess technically it should be in the diseases. Is it is a disease or is it a curse? Uh, I mean, it's he refers to it as a disease in the very first sentence. They, there have been many different approaches to the disease of lycanthropy. Yeah, it's a disease. Well, um, here it is. You, you can you have a chance of catching it, but it's not guaranteed. Yeah. Um, so I, the thing was, I do remember playing in an entire party that everyone was lycanthropic. I, <laughs> everyone was afflicted with the disease. Wow. I, I will suggest that uh, while it's fine to use D&D for many, many things, there are very specific better games to use for So You Want to Be a Werewolf. Oh, sure. I mean, I can yes, think of one off the top of my head. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I know. Yes. Hmm. Whatever could the name of it be? Hmm. hmm. No, I, I know. But at the time, that didn't exist. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> and then my favorite subject, alignment. Oh, yeah, I saw your article about uh, <laughs> alignment oh, no. and uh, um, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden yes. uh, today. Yeah, what'd you think? Oh, your article yeah. was great. Uh, your article is exactly what my take on it would have been, other than alignment is a mistake and never should be assigned. It's just awful. You know, I don't really think we need to talk about it. I feel like alignment, and I think you and I have had this conversation before, though not recorded, Alignment is a conversation that we could have, and and we actually could have an addition more about it because I think you think very differently about alignment than I do. Yeah, um, and that we don't yeah. have time in this episode to talk about that. That so is I think accurate. We're just going to skip it. Yeah, um, and also because it's it's not uh, specific to the DMGs; it's specific to the game as a whole. So we can have a whole different set of episodes about that. The one thing I do want to say is changing alignment is one of the ways that the esteemed Mister Gygax would punish his players. Yeah. So you want to talk about that ad- adversarial role. Alignment in part was a way to solidify the way to have an adversarial role and have it be part of the rules. So that's all I'll say about that. So, you know, I really like the next section because this okay. is the section that breaks down some gems and their properties and talks about their values. And this this is the kind of material I'm here for. This is the kind of stuff that I'm like, ooh, that's really cool piece of information. I'm going to give my players that in their next treasure hall. Yeah. They're going to have a malachite, or they're going to have an opal, or they're going to have... But I'm not going to tell them it's a malachite. I'm not going to tell them it's an opal. I'm going to say it is a pale blue gem with green and gold modeling. Sure. And it looks shiny. Yep. You know, like, that's that's the kind of stuff I dig. Yeah, that's definitely good. Um, like, I, I love that some of the gems wind up being material components for spells, uh, I, I assume that happens in this edition. I haven't actually checked, but it definitely becomes a thing later, no doubt. Um, 
And I just kind of wish that more of the gemstone table was integrated into magic that way, because it's actually pretty cool to see how like you can have story connections to particular gemstones and you know connections between well this kind of magic relies on or draws on this kind of mm-hmm. gem well well there, I love that there kind of is thing. there is this part that talks about the magical properties of gems oh well, that's good yeah that is there huh um, yep, that's, and it, that's but it, do, nice. it doesn't it doesn't codify it and say oh well because uh, Jasper is associated with protection from venom now that's what you have to use to yep. make any kind of magical anti venom right yep um, but it does give it it's a that that's part of the reason I like this is that this is very much a uh, let's have some creative juices flowing kind of thing right because yeah. you you could pick one of these and you could say okay well uh why would this matter in the game well maybe my second level characters have a patron who needs a, an olivine gem of some sort to create a new spell right they're yep. doing spell research they de- determined they need this gem well they're not going to leave their tower to go get it so guess who's going to go get it <laughs> um turquoise Aids horses in all ways, but stone shatters when it operates. <laughs> yeah. What? Right? I mean, what? <laughs> Sh- sure. I mean, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, the idea of finding a bunch of splinters of turquoise around almost any um, stable or livery is mm-hmm. sort of bizarre and amazing. Right. Yeah. And can you imagine describing that in the and the players are like, what the hell? What? Right. Or, or like, well, you know it's a livery because the whole door frame is inset with turquoise. Right. What? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. I like it. Yeah, this is the content I'm here for. This could be page one. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I don't need the stuff before. Well, like this like maybe with some some tweaking to fit to, you know, some other more common situations or whatever, uh, you can get a lot of mileage out of just bringing this into the descriptions in 5e. There's Mm -hmm. there's perfectly Mm -hmm. usable content here. Oh, yeah, for sure. So then we get to armor. Yep. Uh, It's just descriptions of armor. Like, that's fine. And then hirelings. I love this section. This is another one of those really helpful sections if you're young and you don't really know about what certain jobs were called back then, you know, in the medieval times when this game is presumably set. The section of the second at DMG that uh, recapitulates this in far more detail held me enchanted mm-hmm. for longer than I care to admit. Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, this is, you know, this is good stuff. Yep. This is... Uh, if your party is doing something and they need to hire someone, uh, you know, for example, a limner is an individual that does sign painting and drawing of her- of your heraldic devices. So they're they're drawing your heraldry. They're drawing your family crest. They're painting the signs and the banners that are going to represent you and your family line. That's pretty important. I think that uh, I think the key question about the the Limner NPC is 
whether or not you are the sort of person who would have the self-restraint to name this sign painter anything other than Simon, who likes to do drawings, because I am not. <laughs> I do not have that restraint. I mean, the <laughs> – yes. Um, the other the, – the real question here is – do your does your party need henchmen and higher not not henchmen hirelings they're different does your party need hirelings other than the lantern bearer and the pack monkey right like because a lot of these are things that are about the life of the person I mean, and not about what happens when you're adventuring i mean if you're okay with your adventure having a having torn clothes then sure but but sam this you could hire a tailor and mend sure. those come on right sure but i'm just saying having right? a totally normal one hiring a tailor in D. that's right i mean you know and you must name him tim the tailor and then you're fine <laughs> all right T- tim the Toolman taylor right yes that's right that's yes. very good <laughs> <laughs> Um, you get the idea though, right? I mean, I like, I'm joking, but I, I really do like this section because it gives you, it's for the same reason as I like the armor in the gym section, this, this kind of stuff as a DM who was a young person reading this book, this invested in me an interest in what is it going to be like when the characters, after they leave the dungeon, when they're walking back into town, like, who are they going to talk to? What are the values of the things that they gathered in that dungeon? And who is going to tell them, oh, I'll trade you this for that, or this is worth that much? And you know what I mean? Because at that time, I didn't, you know, I was making my own stuff. You know, I didn't I didn't own eight bazillion books and nine bazillion modules and have, you know, at my fingertips how to do these things. And that's, in fact, why this book was written. So... I have nothing but good stuff to say about this section. Um, I, I, one other thing I'll say is that if you have PCs with a noble background in your 5e game and you need mm-hmm. to figure out who their retainers are and what it is they do in serving the, the noble, uh, mm-hmm. more PCs should have um, either a gentleman's valet or a lady's maid. Downton Abbey mm-hmm. has taught me that. That is an awesome job <laughs> to have someone else do. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then a tailor, because she previously mentioned ripped clothes. That's just very gauche. Um, yes. And uh, honestly, who wants to handle their own pack? Get a pack handler. Come on. Right. Come on. I mean, seriously. That is <laughs> – handling your own pack is so common. Right. I mean, you're – you know, come on. Come on. Um <laughs> But then you get into also expert hirelings, and there's mm-hmm. just a lot of them. All kinds of different right. soldiers and um, different like, military roles. Um, yeah, these, these are things that you're not going to use until your fighter is building their stronghold, right? Uh, but it, it has it, the you know, rare feature for this book of including non-human races. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. But there are stats for dwarven smiths and gnomish smiths. Right. Neat. Yeah. There's also a clue as to why there is a famous character in Greyhawk named Robilar, because a Hobilar is a troop that is a mounted infantryman. So are, you can see. Are those Hobilar. connected in 
Well, I'm just saying, right, one of the favorite things to do, there were two favorite ways to make a character name. Take your name, your name in real life, and turn it backwards. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Like Dromage, right? Yep. Is Jim Ward backwards. Uh, Or find a word and just replace one or two letters. So Hobilar becomes Robilar. Fair enough. So the so if you if you have a uh, a need in your fifth edition game to hire someone or to find a sage that has some knowledge, um, not that I'm suggesting you use these sage tables, but these tables actually give you some idea of some things that sages might know and be known for knowing. Uh, so when you're doing some world building, you can be, you know, oh, the foremost sage of, you know, flora in this region knows about all of these types of topics. Well, right? so so I'm going to say this. It could come out as a joke. I need you to understand that I'm not kidding and would run this mm-hmm. game. Okay? As you create your setting, you need to assign an NPC to each of these because they're the academic chair of that thing. Mm-hmm. I would absolutely run that campaign of fantasy academia and like you need to know who the yeah. top sages in each topic are because it's right. going to come up. That's right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm on board. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, of course you are. You actually work <laughs> yeah. for a college. I'm like my dumb ass. <laughs> I'm, to- I'm totally with it. Let's do it. We can combine some of these, you know, <laughs> You don't need this many chairs. Uh, um, I, I, I defy you to tell them that because many of them are wizards. <laughs> yes, I know that would be that would be the biggest problem in the campaign. <laughs> um, Legends and folklore. Excuse you. Yes, I know. Well, look the um, the uh, the the chair of the theology and myth department for Demi Humans is pissed off. Because uh, his chair is not comfortable and he did not get a window office. So he is not available for consultation right now. Well, I'm uh, – uh, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> Look, that comes out as a joke and that's really academia. So no, anyway, no, let's I, move on. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just imagining that uh, some of the, the supernatural and unusual academic chairs published and perished. Yes, <laughs> yes, they did. Planes, they, astral, they did elemental, both. and ethereal. Yes. That is a publish and perish field. Yes, it is. <laughs> so it reminds me of uh, one of the, the very popular running jokes in my campaign um, about uh, when, the, when the PCs were at a, at a tavern in the city and they're exchanging ideas about cosmology and uh, a player who wasn't in the scene um, – piped up as one of the, the tavern servers with some stuff that her character knew about cosmology. And they, they sort of turn and look and we explain that it, this is, you know, a tavern server. And she says, uh, well, I, I'm just doing this to like pay my way through cosmology school. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> we died laughing and it still comes up on the regular and now it's in the recording. <laughs> That's excellent. I love it. That's perfect. You know, the, the best part of the publish and perish field is <laughs> there's always a job opening. That's true. Yes. And many adventure hooks for yes. <laughs> the people who would like tenure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let me explain how the tenure track works. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah, the track keeps having to be repaired, but just don't <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, next there's still, uh, you know, there's several. So there's a lot of stuff about loyalty, which yeah. mm, I don't, I don't love it because I'd rather just handle it without mechanics. That's me. Um, I, I'd rather just decide as a GM that, that I know the character and can do it. I understand that's not for everybody, but that's, that's my, that's my taste. So here's, here's the thing, right? Like, remember uh, this book wasn't meant to have every subsystem used in every game. It's true. But it does give a framework for a DM who doesn't know how to do things yet. Yeah. Like it it provides at least a framework to a way to think about things so that you can, figure it out later on. Like, you know, you might decide to use some of this and then in game you find out, ah, you know, my player, like that didn't work because I really wanted that NPC to remain friendly and loyal to the players, you know, to the PCs. And that's part of how you learn to DM, right? You, you sort of make those decisions. So despite what the table said that I rolled on, maybe, you know, and, and once again, I, I still look at a lot of these things as, you know, this stuff is prep. This is prep fodder, right? This isn't where I'm, you know, I'm going to look in the, I'm going to open the book up when I'm at the table running the game to figure out, you know, what the base loyalty is of this new NPC, right? I'm already going to have that stuff. One hopes. One hopes, right? Yeah. One hopes. The plan, the plan is to have that. Um, but yeah, so and then uh, we have the famous um, diatribe regarding timekeeping. Yeah, I, I quoted that today in Twitter. <laughs> mm-hmm. You cannot mm-hmm. have a meaningful campaign if strict time records are not kept. Right. And like that is that is Granddad sending you an email in all caps and shaking his fist at the clouds <laughs> of timekeeping. Yes, I, it is, man. Uh, and also tilting at windmills to some extent. Uh, but so I do take his point, and it is important in my campaign. I want to mm-hmm. say that. Right. I, I give this section some grief, but I run a campaign where there are more active players than are in any one adventuring group. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's completely reasonable for. You know, this team to be on an adventure and they're in the dungeon doing the thing when we have to stop the session for it being, I don't know, late. Right. People wanting to go to sleep. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not for it. Sleep. Come right? on. Right. Um, and then the next session, we can't get the same collection of people together. So people are either playing different characters like people who are overlapping between the two groups mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. playing different characters or whatever, and they go somewhere else, but the separation in their timeline is very important, right? right? It's, it, it's going to matter in the story, like mm-hmm. what happened when and where. And so, yeah, I, I keep uh, a very exacting timeline for that reason. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I, I will say it depends on the campaign. Um, yeah. In my in my D and D brief game, in that homebrew setting, uh, time is experienced by the PCs and other basic mortal species as a mostly linear 
aspect of of the world. Yeah. But but artifacts and some creatures that can travel to different plateaus are not bound by time. And so you get into this really weird metaphysical idea of well if time is a fourth dimension or is something that can be moved through in a different manner than just simply linearly what happens, right? So in that case, that has implications, but it also means I'm not huge on timekeeping for that campaign. I don't, I, I don't, but in my Rime of the Frostmaiden game, it matters what day it is yeah. because it's, I need to know how many days until the next sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, because that's a huge part of the storyline for my running of that game, and also there are some things I won't spoil things, but there are some things that are extremely timed later on, yeah, that I need to know what day it is, how bright it is outside, what time it is that that sort of thing you know in other words, it matters if there's a full moon because in rhyme of the Frost Maiden, it's basically dark except for the hours between ten and two ten mm-hmm. ten a m and two p m and where it's dim light. And all the rest of the time until midnight is completely dark. And then when Oral does her spell, she creates an aurora that creates dim light for a few hours again. So it's basically dim, darkness, dim, darkness, dim, darkness. It just kind of goes like that. But it matters if there's a full moon. So you have to keep time. Yep. Yep. I think that makes total sense. Yeah. So, I mean, so... I, I get this. I get what he's saying. And also, if you're one of these people that's going to be using those aging tables earlier on, you know, I mean, you know, look, in fifth edition, you might gain a level every two or three sessions, maybe, you know, especially in the early levels. In this, in this game, in first edition, I mean, there were times when you didn't gain a level for months and months and months. Yeah. So, you know, months of game time might go by before you go from third level to fourth level. And so it's important to know how much time, because also there was a training aspect. If you leveled up and you were using the training rules, you needed to train in your class specialty areas for a certain amount of time. So it mattered. Yep. I don't know what percentage of tables actually used those rules, I'm, and I'm not going to take a guess. Some games that I played, we did, and some we didn't, you know? Yeah. Um. Then we have spell acquisition. Yeah, and what interests me most about this is how much it kind of shifts back to the very essayist style, mm-hmm. right? Like, after all these tables, it's in pages, pages and pages of tables, um, <laughs> as soon as we got to time in the campaign, we're back to Gygax's essayist, and that mm-hmm. continues very much into character spells. Um, yeah. And I, I just think that's interesting as sort of an approach to explication. Um, And some of what's here is actually rules, and some of it is written in a voice of instruction to the DM. Mm -hmm. It's not written as a rule, but it's instead, you who is reading this book must do this thing, and I'm going to tell you what to say. And that's that's really different. Um, Mm -hmm. Something I've caught myself thinking about as a writer sometimes um, especially when doing early design documentation. Um, and so it's interesting to see it here, just as like, a, a whole voice of a book. Uh, inform those players who have opted for the magic user profession, right, mm-hmm. is what mm-hmm. I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. Instead of saying, 
maybe um, players who have opted for the magic user profession have just completed a course of apprenticeship, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This isn't important. It's just it just jumped out at me as something to think about as Gygax's whole approach to the text here. Um, well, and then he also kind of shows how there's a difference between hirelings, henchmen, and player characters and NPCs, uh, and why there's so many pages or so many tables about loyalty. Mm. Because when he talks about getting spells after after the beginning spells that you learn and know if you're a caster, uh, how do you get new spells? Well, um, you need to either purchase the spells or you need to find the spell in, in your journeys and whatnot. And so... Um, one of the things that he talks about is uh, being able to find someone with a spell that you would like your character to learn and being able to gain the use of that spell in some way. Either you're going to purchase it or you're going to bargain for it or you're going to trade, right? And he says this, he says, well, superior players will certainly cooperate. In other words, if you have two players that are playing magic using type characters and they have different spells, they're certainly going to trade each other so that they will both have access to all the spells. Right. However, right. He says, so, so spells will in all probability be exchanged between PCs. Right. However, he says, um, the DM should leave this interaction alone, let the players deal with it. However, that is not the case when the PCs deal with NPC henchmen or hirelings. Non-player character hirelings or henchmen will, in all caps, absolutely refuse to cooperate freely with player characters, even if the PC is their own master or mistress. This is dealt with separately because it's about henchmen and hirelings. Right, so in other words, like... Even if you're hiring that person, they are under no obligation to give you their spell knowledge. Why would they? They wouldn't. That's a very strict interpretation of the use and loyalty of henchmen and hirelings and other NPCs that I'm not sure is as stark in, say, 5th edition. Oh, sure. Um, right, because that that sort of interaction doesn't need to exist in fifth edition. Uh, well, right, and I mean the the gaining of new spells has gotten so much more relaxed, mm-hmm, such that right. there's only one class that needs to worry about it, mm-hmm. and even for <laughs> them, they automatically get two new spells and they level up anyway. Right. Um, I mean, as I think we've talked about before, probably because uh, I talk about it all the time. I'm one of those people who's very much enchanted with the uh, effort and engagement of getting new spells. And so for me, a campaign where all spellcasting classes have to put effort into getting new spells is an appealing idea and not a frustrating one because I know I could run it in a fun way and I know I would enjoy playing it. So I'm I'm that kind of weirdo, Uh, (laughs) a weirdo who has also actually read some Vance. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Right. I mean, for me, one of the problems I have with fifth edition is that magic is so easily attained. Yeah. By by everyone. I mean, yeah. all, all except I uh, think what two two subclasses or two classes have access to magic. Sure. Um, that bothers me. 
Uh, not so much that I think the game sucks or anything. Just don't get me wrong. This this is a personal critique. I know this is totally a personal preference thing. I I like to run a much more low magic availability setting. Not that I don't have fun with with high mat. I mean, look, you listen to my D and D brief game. You know, there's magic freaking everywhere. Okay, um, but my personal preference is I like to think of magic as magical. It's mysterious. It's special. And if every flipping person walking around has access to it well it's not really that special anymore that's my own personal thing so i too am one of those weirdos that likes the idea of you know you have to earn that thing you have to figure out how you're going to get access to it and you you have to either research it or you have to find it or you have to beg borrow and steal to finagle it you know, that, that sort of thing is really flavorful to me. Not everybody likes it. That's fine. I'm yeah. Okay and I mean, uh, you see that in some of the supporting fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. it, gaining new spells in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is as hard as as this, and I love it, right? Right. Uh, yeah. if, if I could get a DMG that was as obsessively and engagingly footnoted as uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I would read that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So then, then we move on to um, to sort of. Um, oh my god, I had never seen the recovery of spells section before. Oh really? Huh. that is wild. You have to sleep longer by the value of the highest level spell you're recovering. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a bizarre take on it. Yeah. I mean, it's still not as weird and horrible as some of the um, spell prep times, I recall, from um, Second Ed. There's mm-hmm. there's a, a point at which, like, since you have to memorize every spell individually, and it takes a number of minutes for each spell that you have. Right. And you could really be well above 20th level as a wizard. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You not have to go have anywhere for a while. Somewhere that that says, "Okay, well, if I if this is the set of spells that I am memorizing, here's how many minutes." Right. <laughs> like, but it like, runs into the hours. Right. It, it it runs into many multiple hours. Yes. 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 Like, I, I think it might seriously impinge upon a day. So this is this is what this says. Uh, it says if a cleric or a magic user needs only to memorize first or second level spells, he or she only needs to sleep for four hours and will then be able to memorize or regain as many such spells as they normally are entitled to. However, if they want to include a seventh level spell, the rest time moves up to be ten full hours. Yeah. That's not prep. That's not spell prep. That is, here's the long rest that this mage has to go through so that their mind is sufficiently unfatigued, not fatigued, so that they can handle the memorization aspect of these high-level spells. I'm just going to say that I'm pretty sure I would have at least 7th-level spells if I ever got 10 consecutive hours of sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you probably haven't had uh, 10 hours of sleep in, what, like, uh, I don't know, 7 years? (laughs) (laughs) Accurate, yes. Oh my goodness. Um, anyway, so then it moves on to uh, talking about individual spells and sort of uh, trying to clarify certain things about um, the use of uh, these spells. I'm not 
Sure. So I think a lot of what goes on here is a mix of, I'm going to keep magic mysterious by shoving part of the description of what goes on into the DMG. And I will say, I approve of this more than is actually seemly. Uh, It's, it's kind of neat to like have a conversation where you learn something about how your spell works from the DM. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that's a huge pain in the butt for the DM, but I digress. But also there's also an onus being put on the players here. Because, for example, if you look at the top of page 42 where it talks about Aerial Servant, it says the spellcaster should be required to show you what form of protective inscription he or she has used when the spell is cast. The three forms mentioned are, and then it gives a picture of them, and uh, like that is one of those things where can you imagine you coming to your first D and D game <laughs> and you're sitting there and you're playing a fighter because they just handed you one because you don't really know what's going on and the you get into a dungeon and everything's great and then the magic user the, the magic user at the table magic user at the time not wizards right they tell the DM oh I'm going to cast Ariel Servant. And the DM says, okay, well, uh, what form of protective inscription are you using? Because you might put everyone in danger if you're not using the correct one. And that player has to draw on a three-by-five card and show it to the DM. I mean, how fantastic is that? I mean, that is just – that is exactly the kind of dorky stuff that we used to do at the table. Right. I mean, I mean, that is pure on nerd fantastic, right? Like, I love it. So in fairness, in pre-pandemic times, uh, there's a LARP I play where Warlocks are a uh, PC caster class. And Mm -hmm. uh, they do have to draw their summoning circles to summon their patrons to bargain for spells. Mm -hmm. And they better not F that up. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding, right? Like, yeah. There are very strict rules that the marshals know, and for the most part, the players don't, <laughs> right. about what happens if you, if, you screw uh, if you get that chalk line wrong. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So. It's good. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I don't have much more to say about this, other than it's just, you know, it's nice to have uh, – a way to keep the spells still a little bit mysterious. and, and now, the, I'll also yeah. say the other thing I think that's going on here is the player's handbook came out a couple of years earlier. And so this is also an errata or sage advice section for that book. Mm-hmm. Like right. I had a lot of questions about whether uh, heal covered serious forms of mental disorders. Uh, right. Does it? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, it's a, I got it in two sentences. We're good. Let's move. Yeah. Right. And I think it. I think that's part of what is happening in this section. Um, but but yeah, there's. It's it's possible to find some interest here. Um, you couldn't really implement it in this way in five e, um, really at all. But I'd be interested right. to see a game that had that um, wall of fear and ignorance. Right, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and tried to restore that. It doesn't really work. Not really. Not with text being freely available to all and sundry. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if the players agreed to not read the book, really interesting stuff mm-hmm. could happen. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing about this tome. Right. This is meant for the dungeon master's eyes only. 
And uh, I think it says it right in the beginning. Uh, this is on page seven, the preface written by Gary, not the one written by Mike Carr, says what follows herein is strictly for the eyes of you, the campaign referee, as the creator and ultimate authority in your respective game. This work is written as one dungeon master equal to another. In other words, if you're a player, shut this damn book. You're not supposed to be looking at it. Yep. Yeah. And um, my wife talks about how when she was playing this game as a little kid and her dad was running it, that was a real thing that Mm -hmm. that was a really big deal. He really invested in keeping this book mysterious, um, and that that was an interesting part of her experience at the time. Yeah, I mean, and I and I remember thinking, oh, that's that's really serious. Like I'm I'm if I'm reading this, I have to become a dungeon master. Like I ha- I have to because I can't. I'm not supposed to know this if I don't. Right. Well, so. and that sort of touches on the initiatory experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's right. it's kind of a book curse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it's like, a... Congratulations, if you read this, you're now a forever GM and you'll never play this game again. <laughs> Suck it. <laughs> it doesn't say that, but yes. that's what he means. I, you you know that's what he means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a it's a gayus. Yeah. For those of you listening who don't know what I'm saying, I'm saying geese, G-E-A-S. It's actually pronounced gayus. It means you are bound to the quest, and if you stop, if you stop following the quest or trying to attain the goal, you will wither away and die. So, so it's Irish for prohibition. All right, uh, <laughs> just go look up the Toynbo Cooley and read about Cuckoo, it's fine. We'll wait. Mm-hmm. We'll mm-hmm. just just pause the episode. It's we'll all right. Come back yeah. to us when you're done with the Toynbo yeah. Cooley, and right. you'll know about Gesha and everything you need to know. It's fine. And you're gonna see you then. You're gonna say, "Man, that was a hell of a." long 12 days of edition wars <laughs> had a little stop in the gaelic in between you know it's okay it's, it's fine it's fine <laughs> i mean if you have to translate your own version of the the twin bokali to feel really confident in it you know you do you i'm not i'm not your boss except yeah i am a I mean, podcaster telling you what to do so i'm right, sort of your boss yeah. Well, you know, and if you decide to do what we're telling you, well, I mean, you know, you've only got yourself to blame. I'm sorry. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> anyway, uh, next is adventures. So we have now a little treatise on um, adventuring in the outdoors, what procedures you should use. Um, first edition AD&D was very procedural. Yep. Um, and, and by that, what I mean is, you know, um, the dungeon master had kind of a list of things that you were supposed to do based on the situation, right? Oh, you're outdoors. Okay, well, I need to roll uh, to figure out, okay, well, I need to check to make sure there weren't encounters or if there are going to be encounters. And that depends on what type of terrain we're in and how fast we're traveling. And and, and it was very procedurally generated in terms of what might happen in the game. And the DM could either do that at the table or they could do it as part of their prep and just have it in their notes. But the tables and all of the information, that's what's in this section. Yep. And, you know, there's what interests me in a, in, in that exact procedural way is just how much dice rolling the GM is nominally going to be doing mm-hmm. where like, there's no obvious result until much later. Um, we mostly right. don't do that anymore, and people will joke about it as how to make your players nervous. But right. yes. you literally just can't 
follow these rules and not do that. Um, mm-hmm. so this is sort of the chance of becoming lost stuff, right? Right. It's a, it's a good right. example of that. All the um, all the percentile, uh, tons and tons of percentile rules. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's a lot of detail here that I'm, I'm pretty sure we can't like make interesting to listen to on the air. Um, but there's a lot of like depth in discussion of aerial travel. Um, right. And then he moves on, for example, to waterborne things, yep. right? So talks about ships, talks about uh, the length and width of a ship and wind direction and uh, what happens if your ship gets captured and what if you get knocked overboard and what are some naval terms and, you know, let's talk about breathing and how you deal with drowning and let's talk about combat underwater and, you know, um, what, how does a spell change if you try to cast it underwater that that's sort all of that stuff is in here right well it's interesting to me to see it because um tribalities does so much of this work in 5e mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. like i spent a ton of time studying how 5e spells uh, work in in the rules and mm-hmm. then the places where they suddenly stop working that the rules don't talk about but just logically that doesn't work underwater right right kind of thing right um, yes how do you have a flame underwater well and the answer is it does half damage because everyone has resistance to fire <laughs> uh right it, like mm-hmm. that yeah. that much the answer what is a fog cloud underwater what happens mm-hmm. when you summon right. a creature underwater that doesn't have water breathing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that kind of thing um and so this goes into a lot more detail but I mean, right. we also released a naval combat uh, like mm-hmm. rules PDF to cover a lot of the stuff he talks about here, and so so it's interesting to me to find this in the one EDMG, and then it kind of f's off to the pub until it goes to Saltmarsh for yeah. uh, for official content. I, I think it's in Stormrack in Third Ed. Um, I'm sure it's somewhere in second ed because yeah, there's a, there's a blue DM book ships in the sea. Right. Yes. Thank you. I I knew there was one. I don't have, that's one of the few I don't have. Yeah. Um, It's not bad. I, I I actually used it a little bit to prep for uh, part of the campaign that I am running. Nice. Um, When I, when I thought maybe it would be a more seafaring campaign, which as you know, it's not as seafaring as, it could have been, but well, yeah, right. So it's, it's just, it's just it, it, they, they managed to make all of the responsibility flow upward to Emerin, so it could be her problem. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Um, but in so then there is a uh, you know traveling in the known planes section uh, and how does movement occur there? Yeah, uh, and I, I just I love this for being weird, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. um. D&D has always had some amount of problem of, so you describe all of these planes where I can't possibly survive, and doesn't this seem like a waste to you? <laughs> um, but, you know, he wants to get into all this detail about, uh, about planes and how you might travel there, and that's pretty cool, in part because mm-hmm. he's very conscious of planes as the interstitial space that uh, might connect a campaign to Boot Hill or Gamma World or Metamorphosis Alpha or whatever. Right. 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 And, and also, to be honest, remember, uh, 
this is only the third book in AD&D. So a lot of the material that we now draw upon, I mean, when I say we, I mean people who've been playing for a long time and people like you and I who have had access to various different supplemental books and, and other things for a very long time. You know, uh, the Dungeoneer Survival Guide was not out yet. The Wilderness Survival Guide was not out yet. Uh, as I said, not everybody had access to Dragon Magazine as readily as as maybe the subscription numbers seem to imply. Um, this was it once again, right? So I kind of, every time I think to myself, man, I really could critique this portion of the book, I then think about it and say, well, except this was all there was. So I understand why it's in the book, uh, despite its flaws uh, in, in some respects. That is super fair. And then he moves on to talk about vision. That's a really complicated backstory. We don't have time to just to explain Vision's backstory, dude. <laughs> yeah, so uh, in, in first edition, there, there was infra, there's a regular site, then there's InfraVision which is like infrared vision. So you're seeing in the infrared range. So it's kind of heat signatures. And then there's ultra vision. So you see above the ultraviolet spectrum. And then there's a discussion about invisibility. Um, and then it moves on to other adventuring type things like detecting good and evil and listening at doors. Um, you know, and the thing is that these sections in here they're there because there just isn't a lot of detail in the player's handbook about this. Because remember, this book is what the DM is supposed to be using to adjudicate situations. And the players aren't really supposed to know how it's working in the background, right? The, in, in first edition, the idea was the DM is kind of the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. And you're not supposed to be paying attention to the man behind the curtain yep. or the woman behind the curtain. And you're supposed to just play the game and ignore the the sort of cogs and wheels that are moving in the background. Yes. So there's Gary was technically aware that women existed. Te- technically, yes. Um, I mean, he did have a wife and some children, uh, so I think he. Yeah. He, anyway, I think he uh, was not aware that they would want to have anything to do with D and D. Yeah, not really. No. <laughs> Although, what was that one passage I read a few minutes ago where it did actually refer to him or her? Oh, good. <laughs> so anyway, but whatever. How forward thinking. Yeah. Um, and then there's a combat section. Oh, oh, what I was saying was, you know, in part, these, uh, like the listening at door section and the hearing noise section is more detailed than what you get, I think, in the player's handbook. Uh because you're supposed to be the one that's thinking of the different contingencies, whereas the players are not. So yeah. then it moves on to combat. And I love how far we are into this book before there is any discussion of combat. Yeah. So page 61. The next time someone tells me that D&D is mostly the rules for combat, <laughs> I will observe to them that it is mostly rules for exploration. Right. Yes. Combat is a mere incidental uh, but the important thing is making initiative as complicated as possible. <laughs> yes. Yes, let's have a page and a half of surprise rules. Yeah, although there is there is a portion on here that I like, and that is uh, the reaction table. Um, yeah. I like those. Sure, sure, sure. I'm a fan of, of, of procedurally generating the reaction that a particular monster group or, or NPC group might have, especially upon coming uh, in contact with the 
PCs when they didn't know that they were going to. Yeah, and, and it reminds me a bit of the uh, the engagement role in Blades in the Dark, uh, mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. way, just because you can sort of suddenly start out in this very unexpected situation that you need to mm-hmm. respond to. It that doesn't necessarily feel quite as much like step one. Oh, we're on step three, and we just missed our chance to do steps one and two. Oops. <laughs> uh, also note that um, the other reason I like this encounter reaction issue is he also distinctly addresses parlaying between the PC group and the other group, whether that group is creatures or other humanoids or whatnot. Um, because... I feel like that's something that gets lost, right? I feel like even in fifth edition, there are many multiple instances of uh, the party stumbles upon this creature. Uh, let's make it seem like the creature has a life outside of the game. So, you know, outside of the characters being there. So the creature was involved in this activity, but now that the players have stumbled upon it, it attacks. And it's sort sure. of like, well, <laughs> okay, well, why didn't you just say it's attacking? Because... That nothing that it was doing before matters if you're not going to at least entertain the idea that it could just be surprised and run away, or it could decide that the doesn't want to stop doing whatever it was doing. You know, I mean, like there's lots of different ways that a creature or different set of NPCs could react, and often that's not addressed very well. Yeah. Often it's presented as here is what the thing that that creature does, and so yeah. So I like the idea of having a procedurally generated reaction ready, and then the DM can change it based on how the party interacts. Yeah. No, that that's definitely good. Um, just varieties the spice of life as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. There's not much I want to say about the, uh, the combat section other than good God grappling. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so bad. And so that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, talk about complex subsystem. Not worth it. And, and I'm convinced that this complexity and, and the way it was carried over into 3rd edition, for example, uh, made it even more convoluted and difficult to deal with. And that is why in 4th and 5th editions, grappling is very much a reduced component with much reduced complexity. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely agree that it is a uh, reduced complexity in in 4th and 5th. I played a, a brawler fighter build in 4th uh, in that was the best damn thing. Mm-hmm. It was just so much fun because it had all these special moves that were around grappling. You know, do this mm-hmm. special thing to the creature you have grappled kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, and, and that was just incredibly satisfying. And I really do think that the effects that you're able to achieve with uh, grappling in 5th is shockingly satisfying for its rules brevity. Mm-hmm. Just don't buy the grappler feet. That, that one didn't. <laughs> Work out. Sorry. Um, yeah. No. I mean. I, I. So when I say reduced component, I don't mean uh, not useful or not fun or not usable. What yeah. I mean is, um, they they, it seems like at least consciously chose to reduce the rules weight. Oh no doubt. No no doubt. Oh my gosh. 
and consciously keep choosing to keep it that way. Because there's been ample opportunity to present some more detailed grappling, you know, whatever. And and they just don't. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good choice. And then after all of the grappling and pummeling and <laughs> uh, non-lethal and weaponless combat procedures business, we get into the actual combat tables. And now, here's the thing. These combat tables were not in the player's handbook. Right. So while the player's handbook had information about your you know, number that you needed to hit an armor class, it did not really have your complete table. So the game was played for about two to three years without the DM having the complete two hit tables. Right. There's, you're playing entirely on assumption that you possess the prior work. Right. And we, we covered this in uh, as much detail as you could possibly want in our very first episode. Two hit and armor class, I think we did, right? Uh, yep. And the next up is psionics and psionic combat. And just remember, folks, this is in the core books. This is not mm-hmm. a, a, a distant rules module that you could maybe ignore. This is core book material. Psionics, psionic combat. Uh, your sonic blasts, your mind thrust, your ego whips, uh, mm-hmm. your id insinuations, and your psychic crushes, not a song by R.E.M. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think I think Gary really liked psionics. I, I can't imagine anyone writing this level of excruciating detail and yeah. not caring about it deeply. Yeah. And I, but I think that he thought of psionics as a very different thing from magics. Uh, for sure. Uh, if you look back to um, OD&D, the, uh, mm-hmm. I want to say it's Elders Wizardry. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The rules around psionics there uh, go to great lengths to like lock out druids. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you can never be psionic if you're a druid. Why? Mm, whatever. Um, and it's harder to be psionic if you're a magic user or a cleric kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. But I, I think I, – well, I can't remember the druid thing. I think maybe because they are, druids are supposed to be true neutral, so you cannot – if your mind is too balanced, you can't I mean, wield psionic energies. It is absolutely not explained in the text. I'll no, tell you that no. for sure. Yeah. Uh, monks also uh, can't be psionic. I don't know why. Too much mental discipline. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just making it up now. I don't know, but but I think he did really enjoy the idea of of psionics, and and so yeah, therefore he created enormous amounts of information about them. Yep. Um, and then we get to the saving throw uh, matrices. Yep. Uh, also covered in our previous episode. Mm-hmm. And and once again, just to point out, this is information in the DMG that was not truly available in its entirety in the player's handbook. Uh, no. So, you know. And then we get to hit points. So maybe we want to end this episode at the end of combat on page 82. Yep. All right. Well, uh, sir, where can people find you on the internet? I write for tribality.com. Uh, you can also find me on my own website, uh, brandistoddard.com. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter at Brandis Stoddard, and um, I have a Patreon that is Brandis Stoddard. 
Excellent. And you can find me online on Twitter at DM Samuel, and you can find me on, on the interwebs at RPGmusings.com. And of course, just like always, you can find me all over the Tome Show, where I host Edition Wars and Behind the DM Screen and the D&D Brief Actual Play podcast. 